Community solar has grown exponentially in the last six years, going from just a handful of projects installed before 2010 to a gigawatt by the end of 2018, which is enough to power around 150,000 homes. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan. And I'm your co-host, Suzanne Waters. So let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit. I'm excited to have another exciting episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast. We're actually doing a Community Solar 201 with my co-host, Suzanne. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Benoit. How are you? Hi, everybody. I'm good. I'm happy to be back. Suzanne and I have done a lot of episodes where we do like 101. So we did a Community Solar 101, and we've done an SREC 101. We've also done different states. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on that. And Community Solar is one of the fastest growing of areas of solar. So we thought we would do a Community Solar 201. I was just going to let some people know if they wanted to refer back to our Community Solar 101 episode, that was episode 23. Some of the stuff we talk about today, if you might feel like you need some more of like a foundational or the fundamentals of Community Solar, that that episode would definitely be good to listen to. Also, episode 19, Benoit had our guest speaker, Eric Dunke. The episode is Customer Acquisition and Billing in Community Solar with Eric Dunke. Eric is the founder and CEO of Power Market. I guess you want to just tell people quickly what Power Market does? Yeah, definitely. So Power Market creates software to manage community solar projects. They work with utilities and developers to give them the tools and services they need to make these projects run smoothly and get more clean energy on the grid. It's an amazing episode if you haven't listened to it. Customer acquisition and billing is one of the most challenging aspects of community solar, both managing and acquiring, especially in New York because of VEDER, which is the value of distributed energy, resources, which is a complicated, basically a formula to determine the value that solar is bringing onto the grid. And then obviously Suzanne mentioned episode 23, which we did, which is a really helpful primer on community solar. And then also, I guess episode 42 is just released today. By the time this episode comes out, it'll be on the air for a couple of weeks. I actually moderated a panel in Jersey City. It was a speaking panel, How Solar Tech is Changing the World. And Benoit was one of the speakers. There were three other speakers. And Community Solar was a topic that we spoke about. So that live event will actually be featured on episode 42 as a podcast. So that would be another interesting episode to listen to if you want some additional information and different perspectives on community solar. Yeah, definitely. And that was a great event. It was a live podcast. We partnered with Jersey City Tech Meetup. We thank them for reaching out to do that event with them. And the other panelists outside of me, and obviously Suzanne was the moderator and she did a great job, was Chris Grablitz from PV Pro, Steve Schward from Schward Consulting, and Juan Triol from Strata Solar. I feel like we have to shout out Juan every time. It's funny because he'll text us when he hears it. But it's an amazing podcast too, because it's a live event. And what I really tried to have in the panel was have different people who have a different background in solar and through the life cycle. So basically like Renew Energy, which is the company that I started and Suzanne works for. We do development and financing. You have Steve Schward, who does engineering for his company, Juan, who does estimating from Strata Solar. They're one of the biggest EPCs or solar installers in the US. And then you had Chris from PV Pros and they do O&M. So it really provided a very unique perspective. And it was amazing, like the turnout that we had 
and all the people interested in it. So definitely check out that podcast episode. And then, Bruno, you recently spoke at two conferences about Community Solar, didn't you? Yes. After we did our podcast on Community Solar 101 in April, I did speak at Community Solar Power Summit. It was actually in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, July 18th the 19th. I was one of the speakers and we talked about the New York community solar market. The moderator of that panel was Amanda Venga. She's on the policy team for the Coalition for Community Solar Access. I was one of the speakers with Evan Kulkos, who's the Senior Manager of Customer Business Development at NIPA, which is the New York Power Authority. Ian Mulligan, who's with Cypress Creek Renewables. I also actually moderated a panel about community solar at the New York Solar Summit in Albany in May that NICEA had, which is a lobbying group focused on solar in New York. Renew Energy is also a member. It was called Community Solar Translating Pipelines to Deployment. And I was a moderator. There were three other speakers, Hannah Mueller, who's from Clearway Energy, Thomas Gusick from Solar Park Energy, Michael Mullen from Community Power Partners. So from these events, and the different panels that I've been a part of, we've incorporated that as well. We're also developing one of the first community solar projects for the New York Housing Authority, which is a 1.3 megawatt project on 38 different buildings in Manhattan and Brooklyn. We partnered with two other companies called Kinetic Communities and Euclid Training. What makes these projects interesting, it's obviously in New York City and Manhattan and Brooklyn that have high electricity costs. There's not that much solar because it's hard to find usable roofs and land for solar without issues issues with shading and some of these other things, but we're also providing solar to a certain percentage to LMI, low moderate income housing. And then there's also a community engagement piece where we're trading NYCHA residents, which is the New York Housing Authority. They're one of the biggest rooftop owners in New York, how to install solar. So there's also a job training aspect of it. We're excited to talk on this Community Solar Podcast 201. After that amazing intro, Benoit, I think we're ready. Let's get into it. Definitely. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to start off with some information. Obviously, the question you're all asking if you're listening to this episode is what is Community Solar? I'm going to read some information from SIA, Solar Energy Industries Association. So according to SIA, Community Solar is a situation where a central solar array is built either by a utility, municipality, or some other third-party owner. Community solar projects may be located on public or privately owned property. Residential and commercial customers subscribe to the solar array, meaning they pledge to purchase their electricity from the array, usually for a contract-specified period of years. 19 states and Washington, D.C. have enacted policies that enable community solar arrangements between subscribing organizations and participating subscribers. Community solar has grown exponentially in the last six years, going from just a handful of projects installed before 2010 to a gigawatt by the end of 2018, which is enough to power around 150,000 homes. Community solar installations are on track to grow even more exponentially in the coming years. The Smart Electric Power Association, SEPA, estimates there will be two gigawatts of community solar installed nationwide by 2021. So Massachusetts, Minnesota, and Colorado are leading the nation in community solar adoption, with New York, New Jersey, Maryland, and Illinois all poised for significant growth over the next several years. Today, many American households and businesses don't have access to solar because they rent, live in multi-tenant buildings, have roofs that are unable to host a solar system, or experience some other type of mitigating factor. 
Community solar provides homeowners, renters, and businesses equal access to the economic and environmental benefits of solar energy generation, regardless of physical attributes or ownership of their home or business situation. Community solar expands access to solar for all, including in particular low to moderate income customers most impacted by a lack of access all while building a stronger distributed and more resilient electric grid. Community solar refers to local solar facilities shared by multiple community subscribers who receive credit on their electricity bills for their share of the power produced. This model for solar is being rapidly adopted nationwide. Just in addition to that, GTM Research, Wood McKenzie, and Vote Solar recently released a report indicating between 50% and 75% of U.S. electricity consumers can't put solar arrays on their roofs for whatever the factor may be. Another question that you need to ask and then have the answer to to really understand how community solar is possible is what is virtual net metering? So I'm also now just going to read this small excerpt from Energy Sage. So virtual net metering is a bill crediting system for community solar. It refers to when solar is not used on site, but is instead externally installed and shared among subscribers. In this case, you receive credits on your electric bill for excess energy produced by your share of a solar garden. I like that word, solar garden. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, Benoit, you'll walk us through the different models of community solar. Yeah, just to go back to Suzanne's point, without virtual net metering being approved by your state, then you can't really have community solar projects. So that's why that's very important to have that. And there's different type of bill crediting by each state. The other thing too, that's very important, just because you hear community solar in New York, community solar in New Jersey, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Maryland, Colorado, they're all very unique in their own ways. Just like kind of quickly, like between New York and New Jersey, New York has, as I mentioned, Veter, where New Jersey is doing like the full retail rate. New Jersey also is doing a program where they're doing a pilot program where there's system limitations, meaning it's for three years at 75 megawatts, where in New York, there's not those limitations as well. Each state is very different. And we're thinking actually to eventually have podcast episodes where we do Community Solar Minnesota, Community Solar New Jersey, Community Solar New York, because they're all extremely unique. Just like SRECs, as we spoke about before, just because you have an SREC in one state, it's a totally different program in another state. There's a learning curve that's required for each state. I'll go into the four different business models through which community solar projects get done. Actually, if you haven't seen it, Standard Solar recently came out with their guide on community solar. And this is where I got this from. So basically, the first one is a utility-sponsored model. Under this model, utilities offer their customers the opportunity to buy solar from a shared facility that's owned by the utility. Typically, the electricity will cost slightly more than the current retail rate. And the model is also usually limited to subscribers that live within the distribution territory of the utility. That's very common for any community solar project. Usually, you could only receive the credits within the same utility service area. There's some utilities have in the past charged more to have electricity that's renewable. So that's the utility-sponsored model. Then there's on-bill crediting. That's another community solar option, which involves residents and businesses that invest to build their own array for which they receive their credit on a bill that's equivalent to amount they invested in the array. Credits can be apportioned as KW offsets to the customer bills or direct monetary credits. 
And that's not as common as other models that we see just because there's SEC reporting requirements and you have to have accredited investors and even the legal costs related to to structuring this. So we haven't really seen this model become very popular, but I've seen more on a smaller scale, but not on sort of the larger scale projects. The most common one is a special purpose entity, which is the SPE model. That's basically the acronym for special purpose entity. In this approach, individuals or companies join in a business enterprise to develop a community solar project. The business may design, construct, and own the facility, the work with the local utility to allocate the benefits to subscribers by using an SPE or even an SPV, special purpose vehicle. Organizations may take advantage of incentives and tax credits that are unavailable to utilities. And that's the most popular model that you'll see because it's really private enterprise that's really taking the initiative of developing community solar projects. It's also the other term other than the special purpose entity model you hear will be the subscriber model because basically you have to find subscribers to purchase the electricity. And then there's basically the special purpose vehicle that owns the project. And then one that I haven't really seen is a nonprofit buy a brick model. In this model, donors contribute to a shared renewable installation owned by a charitable nonprofit organization. I like that. Buy a brick. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And it's buy brick by brick, right? So I think that's great. That's there. I didn't even know that until I was reading this piece that Standard Solar created. No, I was just say thanks for explaining all of those models. I know another important aspect of this, which I'm going to ask you to explain, tell us all a little bit more about consolidated billing. Definitely. So that's actually something that was one of the overarching things that I've been hearing at the community solar panel that I led in New York, and then actually this community solar summit that I was in Philadelphia that I spoke at. And basically what consolidated building is, right now you have a bill from your energy company, but then you would actually get a separate bill as well from the solar company that you're basically buying electricity from, from the community solar project. So what a lot of people are proposing that will simplify the system, instead of getting two bills, to have one bill from the utility that also takes into account the energy that you're paying for the community solar project. It will also probably increase the return. Most people pay their electricity bill because they're obviously scared that their lights will be turned off. So if you put it into two bills or into the utility bill, financiers feel like there's going to be a high probability that the bill is going to get paid. Maybe downside that I heard during the conferences about that is they don't necessarily trust that the utility will bill correctly. So it's up to the customer management and acquisition company to make sure that they're doing that correctly. But that's something that in discussions with other companies, I've been hearing a lot of people trying to push for consolidated building by the utility for these community solar projects. Yeah, I know. I'd prefer to get one bill instead of two. (laughs) And we talked about that briefly too, actually, in the Community Solar 101. Yeah, I remember. had a preference for one bill. Yeah, for sure. Another, I feel like, extremely important aspect of community solar is educating residential customers 
about solar and about community solar. So can you run through some of the talking points on that? What's been amazing is that community solar allows residential customers to buy solar, as Suzanne mentioned, that could not have solar due to the various reasons that she mentioned. But the challenge is educating residential customers the difference between a community solar project, which is basically tied to a real asset, meaning a solar project in usually the utility service territory where that resident is versus a third-party energy supplier, a competitive retail supplier that's very common in deregulated markets. There's been a lot of like bad press with these competitive energy suppliers where they do bait and switch tactics, where they provide extremely low rates to get the residential customer interested. And then they basically jack up the rates, assuming that the residential customer won't check that going forward in the future. So people have had bad experiences with that. So really as an industry, we have to educate residential customers on what a community solar project is. Obviously that won't be easy, but that's a very important aspect of the offtake is residential customers and making sure that they're educated to make the right decision. So what are some trends in financing for community solar projects? It's interesting because before for community solar, obviously financiers always prefer long-term contracts, 15, 20 years, 10 years. But we're seeing like the tenors of these contracts getting less and less. We're also seeing financiers, some financiers, slowly getting comfortable with 100% residential customer offtake. They would always prefer some sort of anchor tenant, which basically takes 30 or even more of the production, like certain states like New York and Massachusetts have limitations on the amount of community solar coming from one customer, which is 30%. In Minnesota, we've seen where it's pretty much a few commercial industrial municipalities or townships or schools that make up their projects because they don't have that requirement for residential customers, even though now they've put in some sort of adder to incentivize that So what we're finding is that financing communities are slowly getting more comfortable in having customers that are 100% residential, where there's no long-term contracting, where there's no penalty if the customer opts out. Also, they're not looking at FICO scores. Another big thing, which I mentioned too, is that they're also getting comfortable with low-moderate income housing our income customers, sorry, not housing with community solar, because a lot of states have been making that mandatory that a certain amount of the customer offtake has to be that because there's a perception that solar is only for wealthy or above middle class customers. You know, I mentioned our NYCHA project where we're working with NYCHA on trying to figure out what component or what percentage of the customers would be LMI. Also, how do you qualify them as LMI and what's sort of that process going forward as far as how we fill those customers. So financing is getting more comfortable with that. Financiers and developers like Community Solar because if you think about it, it's a utility scale project, but instead of getting a utility rate or selling back to the grid, which could be between two to four cents or five cents in New Jersey, you're getting a discount to residential rates, which is more between 15 to 16 or 13 to 17. So obviously the returns of these projects are a lot higher potentially than a regular utility scale project. There are obviously a lot of other costs though that are involved. There's, we mentioned about customer acquisition and management of these customers. We mentioned educating 
the customers. This is all relatively new. So it takes a lot more money to do that. And the challenging thing as well, too, is like you need a certain percentage of the customers subscribed to build these projects. And then I mentioned it to you before with some of the complexities with some of the monetary crediting for community solar. I specifically mentioned like Veter in New York, where it's very complicated and there are a lot of different components. You really need a great customer acquisition and management company to make sure that the utility is charging the correct rates and community solar is here to stay. We're seeing more and more states coming out with pilot programs and potential legislation. They love the opportunity that it's solar for all. And those are probably the biggest trends right now that we're seeing in financing for community solar projects. That's awesome. Thank you for all that information. Do you want me to talk a little bit about the investment tax credit? Definitely. This is obviously the end of our talk on community solar. If you would like us to cover any topics or anything specifically as well in community solar, please feel free to reach us out to us at info at Renew Energy, R-E-N-E-U Energy.com. But yeah, definitely, Suzanne, I think the investment tax credit to talk about that would be uh, great. And I think the whole community should know about this. Yeah, because obviously it's a huge, well, as we know, it's a huge driver in the solar market. So the investment tax credit, abbreviated ITC, it's one of the most successful clean energy policies ever passed and has helped support a robust solar industry in the United States. 52% average annual solar growth since the ITC was enacted. That's huge. So right now what the investment tax credit is, it's a credit on your taxes for 30% of the cost of the system. There's actually a step down over the next couple of years. So till the end of 2019, it's 30%. Come 2020, it will be 26%. In 2021, it's a 22% credit. And then in 2022, it's 10%. And that's for community and utility scale. There will be no ITC for residential solar. And I think it's also important to mention, I know we've talked about this in past episodes, the safe harboring. So you have to, Benoit, it's 5% of the project has to be here. Yes, that's correct. By the end of the qualifying year to get the designated percentage. So if you want to take advantage of the 30% tax credit, you'd have to have 5% of the project procured by the end of 2019. And the biggest thing we see is that people will buy and secure the panels for the project, correct? Yes, that's correct. And it's been challenging already. We're in August of 2019 that a lot of it's hard right now for people to find panels to be able to safe harbor. So it's been interesting to kind of see people are trying to use a lot of different panels than they haven't used in the past to make sure that they could qualify for the ITC. So, and actually the House and Senate are working on an extension of the ITC. Abigail Ross Hopper, who is the president and CEO of SIA, who we referenced earlier, she's urging lawmakers to pass the critical legislation. And hold on, I actually have information. This is quoting Abigail Ross Hopper. Since 2005, when the ITC was first passed, the ITC has created hundreds of thousands of jobs, sparked more than $140 billion in private investment and helped grow solar development by more than 10,000%. So as you can see, for our industry, it's critical to try to get this extension of the solar investment tax credit passed. Definitely. It's really important. People don't realize that 
all energy assets are getting some sort of government benefit. There's a mastered limited partnership. A lot of energy projects are incentivized through that structure that the government has. Unfortunately, solar is not part of the technologies for the master limited partnership. The investment tax credit is extremely important for the growth of the industry. It basically, as Suzanne mentioned, represents 30% of the cost of the project. So this is really important. And this five-year extension of the 30% ITC just recently was put in the House and the Senate the end of July. We're hoping that it obviously gets passed. Please talk to your representative in Congress to let them know the importance of this bill. That's a federal incentive. So it applies nationwide, totally separate from individual state incentives. Yeah, and it's interesting too. Like, So obviously that meant represents 30% of the cost of the system. There's also five-year maker's depreciation, which is also a federal incentive. And that basically makes up another 20 to 30%. So basically 50 to 60% of the cost of the solar project, you recruit from federal incentives over a five to six year period. And then that does include, obviously, as Suzanne mentioned, like the state level incentives, if your state has incentives. I feel like, does that wrap up our episode? Yeah, definitely. It's been an amazing podcast. You always do a great job co-hosting and moderating our first live podcast as well a few weeks ago. I appreciate everything you do, Suzanne. Do you want to close out the show? Thanks, Benoit. Yeah, everybody who knows me knows I love to talk. So (laughs) this is a great opportunity for me to do that. And yes, as it's become tradition for me to end all my podcasts here, I'd like to end with hashtag Carpe Solum. For those of you who haven't heard it from me yet, it means seize the sun. Thanks. Thanks. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community, and that's what we're all about right now, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. 